Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception. I am your hostess, Bex David, and this is the space between the picket lines. This is a place where we talk about all things pro-life, but we come at it from the basis of real science, logic, and provable data. Now, in the last episode, we discussed abnormal pregnancies and the differences they make. This week, we are going to dig into abortion coercion and the concept of no uterus, no opinion. Now, really quickly, there are topics that are touched on in this episode, such as, but not limited to, men's voices in the matter, rape, waves of feminism, and sex trafficking, which I have actually devoted entire separate episodes to already. And I highly encourage you to check them out afterwards to get more information and to hear more facts and statistics that back up what I'm going to be saying here. And now on to the regularly scheduled programming. So I've often heard the phrase, no uterus, no opinion. Now, predominantly, I will hear this from females who would identify themselves as pro-choice. Now, the surrounding logic tends to fall into one of two categories and sometimes both. Category one is that it first intonates that women are being forced to carry pregnancies that they do not want or need because of pressure from the males in their world, usually from the guy who is the father of the child, or maybe from the woman's father or something like that. Second, it revolves around some variant on the thought process that since you, as a male, are unable to carry a kid inside of you, then you have zero right to tell me what I should do about the kid either currently or futuristically inside of me. Now, by way of initial counterfire, I would like to quote from a publication called The Citizen's Journal, and it says the following. It is interesting that these women are taking the position that only people with specific body parts are entitled to be engaged in the democratic process, because for the first 133 years of this country, if you didn't have a penis, you were not allowed to vote. So in essence, these women are behaving exactly like many of the powerful men in our country's history who denied women the right to vote based on their biology, unquote. Also, it is worth mentioning that most people who like to say no uterus, no opinion are also the same type of person who would argue that males who claim the title woman can become pregnant, and conversely that females who claim the title man should be known as pregnant men. And if you don't believe me on that, there have been several documentaries done on quote-unquote pregnant men. And for every single one of those documentaries, the person who is claiming to be a male and is pregnant was born a female, aka these are people who were born with uteruses. So the whole thing's ridiculous and it's goofy, but it's also a topic for a separate episode. Now, all of that said, to truly tackle the concept of no uterus, no opinion, I would like to investigate how this phrase became common parlance. Now, while I am certain that variants on the saying have been around for goodness only knows how long, the way that the quote actually became famous and popularized on a mass scale is what I would call disturbing, to say the very least. So here is the story. There is a show called Friends that aired on a platform in the USA called NBC from the years 1994 to 2004. This resulted in 10 seasons worth of content. Now, interestingly enough, this show began airing at almost the exact same time 
as third wave feminism started to pick up steam. So it's fair to say that both had a pretty massive following, and they still do in certain circles to this very day. So in season 8, episode 14 of this show, there's a character named Rachel Green, and she's having an argument in a hospital setting with two of the main male characters, Joey and Ross. They're discussing childbirth, and the guys are trying to offer their opinions about the merits and the detriments of epidurals. For those of you who do not know, epidurals are an option available to women to help make the birthing process easier. So Rachel responds with the mega viral one-liner, no uterus, no opinion, and it shuts the guys down in their tracks. Here's where things get wild. A pivotal plot point, which launched season eight, which is the same season where this whole fiasco in the hospital is going down, is that the character Ross, who is in the scene with Rachel and gets silenced because he's not a woman, is the father of the child that Rachel is pregnant with in that very same scene. See, what happened there is that these two characters, they have an on-again, off-again romance, uh, both romantic and sexual relationship that spans many seasons of the show. And Rachel had ended up pregnant with Ross's child at the beginning of the season in question, so the beginning of season eight. Therefore, the man responsible for impregnating her is being told by her that he does not have a say in her pregnancy or her birth choices because he's not the one carrying the child who shares half of his DNA. Like I said, this scene went viral. It became a meme. It has been applauded by quote-unquote feminists for multiple decades, and it has been used for the past 20 years to silence countless other fathers. Thus, the origin is wild and arguably a very bad look. Now to debunk the phrase itself. I'm going to go ahead and just state the obvious here. It takes two humans, and not just any two humans. It takes specifically one biological male's sperm and one biological female's egg to create a third human, just like we see with Ross and Rachel. If it takes both mother and father to create the child, then it would follow that they should both hold responsibility for ensuring that child's comfort and well-being. And the very basis of comfort and well-being begins with the whole survival thing. And the opposite of survival is abortion. Because the purpose of an abortion is specifically to end a child's life in utero. So if either of the parents is not actively engaged in that set of endeavors, aka the child's comfort and well-being, then the issue is with that parent. Therefore, the whole no uterus, no opinion thing is not valid. Now, as with any rule, there are, of course, exceptions, and we're going to get into them. First, if the woman was raped, she should not, I repeat, not have to co-parent with her rapist. Now, that is entirely separate from saying that she has a right to kill her child, which she morally does not. Conversely, if a man gets raped by a woman and that woman ends up pregnant, Two things are true simultaneously. First, the child is his. And second, he should not be forced to co-parent with her. And again, the answer here is not kill the kid for the same reason as it isn't if the woman is the one getting raped. There's also the conundrum of sperm and egg banks and what happens when a woman is carrying a child for a couple who is either unable or unwilling to conceive in a natural way. I'm not denying that those situations exist, nor am I denying that that is a very tricky set of webs to unweave. 
And we are going to tackle all of those items in separate episodes later on down the road, or they have already been tackled earlier on. It depends on the thing, but either way, check it out. But for now, I'm going to focus on the overwhelming majority of cases. Mom plus dad in a consensual situation create a kid who they are then both responsible for caring for. So the short, sweet, and proper response to no uterus, no opinion should be, it is not his body, but it is his baby. Or if you are the father of the child in question, it is not my body, but it is my baby. And if you have an issue with that response, I wish to direct you to the industry of paternity testing slash paternity court slash child custody hearings slash child support payments. All of those revolve around the same concept. That concept is that whether it is in utero testing or after birth testing, that testing can and should be done to determine who the male is who is on the hook for helping to create the child and by proxy that male is morally and legally and ethically obligated to step up to the task of fatherhood because it takes two to tango, one male and one female. They both go into creating the kid. They are both responsible for that child's health, well-being, safety, etc. So as for paternal responsibility, the same show, Friends that is, provides another look into why the phrase no uterus, no opinion makes zero sense, although the show's answer is tragically off-base, if you were to ask me. See, Ross's debut in season one is actually centered around the unspoken question, when do dads get to speak up and fight for their rights? I kid you not, Ross's very first introduction is that of a brand new divorcee. And why is he a divorcee? Because his wife left him while she was pregnant with his child so that she could go shack up with a woman. And the whole, there's like multiple episodes in that season and in following seasons, which tackle him attempting to not get pushed out of co-parenting his own child with these two women. Now, he voices his frustration about this time and time again. There are even episodes named after his frustration. Eventually, he becomes a fairly distant father to his own first child, and then that kid is basically forgotten about when he impregnates Rachel. So the show's answer is just that if it's a tricky paternal situation, essentially just walk away, which is a horrible, horrible lesson. So yeah, maybe not the best dynamic to reference for healthy co-parenting advice or healthy philosophies on the matter. In conclusion, this show and the quote which it made famous, no uterus, no opinion, they steer us wrong from start to finish on this issue. So the show gets it wrong, and the feminists get it wrong, and no uterus, no opinion is a logical fallacy which never should have gained traction. Again, remember, the concept of this phrase is that guys supposedly have zero right to speak up and convince women to do or not to do anything regarding pregnancy and childbirth. The idea is that men should just shut up and leave women to, con- uh, to, to their own devices. But if that's the case, what exactly does the data show that men are trying to convince women of when they speak up in the first place? There are all these guys supposedly talking to women. What exactly are they saying? Enter the concept of abortion coercion. To put it bluntly, women are being pressured by the men in their world 
to abort a child that they actually wish to carry and then bear and then either raise or give up for adoption. Now, I am well aware that that is quite a lofty statement. And of course, it requires a ton of proof. But have no fear, because as always, I have come prepared. Now, when looking at abortion coercion, we have to examine a couple of very real and very tough questions. Does the male voice actually make a difference in the matter? Will a man speaking up to the woman in his life affect her decision at all? To answer that, we're going to begin by looking at a study that was actually performed twice, first in 2015 and again within the past year, so circa 2021 to 2022. Compliments of LifeNews.com and through an organization called CareNet, we know that, quote, in 2015, when we surveyed women who had an abortion, they indicated that men were the most influential factor in their decision, unquote. Now, as a point of clarification here, this study specifically focused on the fathers of the children. And both times that the study was run, it actually focused on 1,000 individual men who knew that their partner was pregnant and who knew that their partner later had an abortion. And the data is enlightening. Quote, most men said that their partner spoke with them first before having the abortion. And 38% admitted that they had the most influence on her decision compared to any other family member or the abortionist. Of those who spoke to the women, 42% said that they either strongly urged or suggested that she have an abortion. In contrast, 27% said that they suggested or urged her to not abort her unborn child. Additionally, 31% said that they did not give her any advice one way or the other, the study found, unquote. Now, as an interesting aside on this, in two-thirds of these pregnancy scenarios, the man and the woman were not married. Quote, according to the study, 29% said that they were living together and another 29% said that they were seeing each other. Only about one-third, or 34%, said that they were married. Now, that's a bunch of data, so I'm going to go ahead and translate that into normal person speak. And when I do, we're going to come away with a startling answer. In a majority of cases from both iterations of the study, the father of the child had a heavy influence on the mother's decision. And in both iterations, the majority of the fathers actively encouraged, either through verbal intimidation or through pointed silence, the mother's choice to abort her child. But wait, there is more. There have been not just this one study, but several studies done on that same exact thing. I'll tell you about a couple of them. In 2009, the Elliott Institute, which is an Illinois-based organization that researches the impact of abortion on women, it found that 64% of post-abortive women said that they felt pressured to have an abortion, often from a spouse or a partner. Then a separate 2014 study titled The Health Consequences of Sex Trafficking and Their Implications for Identifying Victims in Healthcare Facilities found that forced abortions are common among sex trafficking victims. Researchers actually discovered that 55% of sex trafficking victims had at least one abortion, with more than half saying that they were forced to abort one or more unborn babies. Now, that matters to this discussion because women who were forced to have sex against their will would still have actively chosen life for their children. It was the men who hurt them who then 
forced them to kill the kids in order to negate both the evidence and their paternal responsibilities. There was also a 2019 study regarding domestic violence against pregnant women. It was called Homicide During Pregnancy and the Postpartum Period in the United States, 2018 to 2019. And its major discovery is that homicide is the number one cause of death among pregnant mothers. Now, two things of note here. First, this predates COVID mania, so that cannot be used as an outlier excuse. And two, domestic violence against women increases when the man finds out the woman is pregnant because he does not wish to take responsibility for the child he helped to create. So his solution becomes essentially beat the brakes off of her until she miscarries. Now, as anecdotal evidence here, I'm also going to present you with a couple of quick news stories on the topic, and I encourage you to go look these up separately when you have a moment. First, 2015, KLS News reported that Christopher Richard Polson out of Smithfield, Utah, murdered both his ex-girlfriend named Emily Cuijano, uh Almiran, and her three-year-old son because she refused to abort his child that she was pregnant with. So in this case, he didn't just, you know, beat her until she miscarried. He killed her, he killed his own child who was unborn, and he killed her already living, like outside of the womb, three-year-old son. There's also the 2020 WREG news story out of Tennessee. Enter Kevin McKinney. He met up with his pregnant ex-girlfriend named Kiera McNeil, at a Walgreens. They were supposed to discuss co-parenting, and instead he proceeded to murder her in cold blood at a Walgreens, rather than take responsibility for the fact that they had created a child together that it was now his responsibility to care for. And this problem isn't just limited to America, by the way. Let's look across the pond to an example set in 2019 by George Young. The Scottish Sun reported that Mr. Young threatened to slit the throat of his ex-girlfriend's baby and then kill himself if she did not have an abortion. I could go on and on, but I think that you get the idea. Moral of the story being, there are many examples across both studies and news stories alike of women whose abuse was directly connected to their refusal to abort their children. The main problem is not guys telling women, carry my kid to term against your will or you're an evil human. Rather, it is that men are very clearly telling the mothers of their children, abort or else. Abortion coercion is tragic and it is heartbreaking and I have been there myself and it is fundamentally disturbing as well as morally outrageous. So fathers... You need to step up and do better to support your women and your pre-born children. Not all fathers, but you know the ones. But that's not all that's at risk here or all that needs to be thought about here. What happens when you're not the guy who helped to create the child? What happens when you have some female in your life tell you that she's pregnant and she doesn't want to keep the child or that she's pregnant and she has no idea how to care for the child because the child's father has just abandoned her? Or maybe you don't even find out from her. Maybe someone else tells you, hey, this is happening. How do you even begin to broach the topic? I'm going to be honest with you. It's tricky. It's a difficult conversation to maneuver and you're probably going to make some people mad, and you might lose friends or even family members. 
But if you're brave enough to try and speak up and to try to help these women out, first, I give you all the accolades in the world. And second, allow me to offer five pointers from the perspective of having been the woman who faced abortion coercion. Now, before we begin, I'm going to warn you in advance, these rules partially come from a faith-based place. So if faith is not your shtick, they're probably going to sound a little bit weird. But please bear with me. I promise you it's going to matter a lot. Also, while I am speaking directly to men on this one, the advice works just as well for women encouraging other women. So, rule number one, do not hop straight to if you have an abortion, you're an evil child murderer who's going to rot in hell. And yes, I've heard that exact phrase before from guys who meant well. Now, while it is true that killing a child in utero is murder, it's also true that you have got to have tact. You have to speak to women in those situations in a way that they can hear you. It does zero good to either mom or child if you start preaching to her or yelling at her because she is already going through enough stress and you do not need to add to it. Then we get to rule number two. Remember that her life and her safety matter just as much as the child's life and safety. This is not a care about the kid at the expense of the mom scenario. You don't have to trade the one for the other. God loves them both equally, and so should you. Rule number three, ask her why and mean it. Oftentimes, these women feel trapped in a corner. They feel like they've got no way out and like they've got zero good options. And yes, sometimes they are just being selfish. But more often than not, the answer is incredibly complicated. Their life circumstances matter. Their reasoning matters. Their feelings of being overwhelmed or terrified or unsure or maybe some combination matter. They are human beings in crisis and that is going to heavily influence what they choose to do next. And if you're having trouble comprehending that, just think about any other scenario where you were in crisis and it seemed like you did not have any good options. It seemed like you were between a rock and a hard place. I will bet you, if I were a betting woman, I would, bet you, I would bet you money that you've been there before and you maybe didn't make the right choice and you only realized you hadn't made the right choice later on down the road because I know I have certainly been there myself. So put yourself in that woman's shoes and understand that asking her why will show her that you're trying to understand her and it will give her an avenue to feel comfortable enough to vent and to think out loud. And sometimes that makes all the difference. Then we get to rule number four. Assure her that she is not alone. Help her find the resources and support groups and whatever else she needs. A huge obstacle that many women face in a crisis pregnancy situation is believing that they've got zero help and zero support and a ton of judgment for whatever choice they make. And that is a scary place to be. Tell her that going forward, you are going to help her and you're going to pray for her and that you're going to be there to listen to her and to offer guidance. And finally, rule number five, voice out loud to her the fact that abortion is not the only option. Not in a mean or overbearing way, but in a calm and factual way. 
Because believe it or not, there are quite a few women who haven't even considered that they do not have to get an abortion. So be gentle and say those words. Say, abortion isn't your only option. There's another way. There are several other ways. And I am happy to do what it takes to help you find them. I guarantee you that can make all the difference in the world. So once you've gone through those five rules, what comes next? Well, here's where I'm going to sound really religious, and I'm okay with that. Once you've done all of that, no matter what she decides, pray for her. And if she allows you to, pray with her. And yes, that is absolutely my diehard Christian faith coming to light. Because even if you don't believe in prayer, God can still hear you. And that woman needs prayer for herself and her future and her healing and her hope and many things that you may not have thought about or have a clue about. I am living proof that prayer moves mountains and it can make all of the difference in someone's life, even when you never know about it and even when you're never thanked for it. Also, Here's a special word to any guys out there who may have already walked the path of encouraging a woman to get an abortion or perhaps just staying silent when she looked to you for advice. The future, or sorry, not the future, but the beautiful thing about living is that you can learn from your past mistakes and be better in the future. Your past does not have to relegate the decisions you make going forwards. So apologize to her and begin making amends. And maybe, maybe you encouraged her to get that abortion and she ignored you and she chose life for the child anyway. And maybe you're the father of that child and there's a kid out there that you have not acknowledged, you haven't helped the mom, you haven't helped your kid, none of that. Start making amends for that. And maybe that is not an option that's currently available to you. And if that's the case, then be honest with yourself about where you fell through on your responsibilities And take accountability and tell someone, make it right with God, try to make it right with the woman who you had the child with, and if she lets you, step in and start fixing things. And no matter what, make it your goal, make it your duty, make it the thing that you are going to concentrate on to be a better version of yourself in the future. Because your past does not have to relegate who you become. So at the end of the road, if I were to encapsulate all of the above lessons into three sentences, it would be the following. First, men, if you get a woman pregnant, take responsibility for your child's future and the mother of your child's needs and do it with a kind heart. Second, for all of the rest, whether you be male or female, be part of the solution in a gentle way that the woman in your life can hear and process. And third, above all else, stand for life, both for the women in your world and for the children they are carrying. You cannot save every woman, and you cannot convince every woman to carry to term, but you can do much better about making a positive difference. As my personal motto goes, motto, as my personal motto goes, one life at a time. And now for our book of the week. It is called The Walls Are Talking, Former Abortion Clinic Workers Tell Their Stories. 
This book was written by Abby Johnson, and it was compiled after she spoke to several former abortion clinic workers who she personally helped to step out of that world through one of the programs that she founded that's called And Then There Were None. It's a phenomenal program. These women have incredible strength. And this book is discussing their firsthand encounters regarding people exactly like the ones described above. It is a painful and heartbreaking and eye-opening read that I highly encourage to all. Now, as for next time around, we're going to discuss the origins and roots of the words that both sides use, because the etymology behind the movement matters more than you might think. Between now and then, I challenge you to live as though you are loved and cherished and precious simply because you are alive. And our Savior did not create you by accident. Live as though your life has meaning and purpose, and I promise you that it will revolutionize your world in the best way possible. Until next time, let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. Thank you for tuning in, and God bless.